Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Before we get into our conversation for this week, dear listener, I want to alert you to a special series I've been doing all this month over on Instagram. Each evening, I've been inviting friends from all sorts of backgrounds many of whom have been guests on this show, to join in for short conversations exploring one of the most beloved books of the Baha'i Faith, The Hidden Words by Baha'u'llah. The Hidden Words are made up of brief, poetic passages written in a gorgeous Sufi style that talk about love and justice, our relationship with the divine, with each other, and ultimately ourselves. I'm having so much fun with this series and all my friends so if you're on Instagram, I invite you to join us. Just follow at interfaithish to find all the videos so far and get notifications when we're going live. All right, on to the show. This morning, dear listener, I'm happy to be joined by two leaders in the interfaith movement. Tahil Sharma, who's based in Los Angeles, is regional coordinator with the United Religions Initiative, an international organization promoting grassroots interfaith efforts around the world. And Dr. Wolfgang Reinbold, an interfaith organizer with the Evangelical Lutheran Regional Church in Hanover, Germany. And one of the minds behind the House of Religions, an interfaith cultural center in the city. I spoke with Tahil and Wolfgang to get their perspectives on how they've seen interfaith engagement evolve over the years and what they see as the future of the interfaith movement. Tahil, can you start us off? Can you tell us a little bit about where are you coming from and, and how are you getting into interfaith activism work? Yeah, so um, arguably I came into interfaith work just by birth. Um, I was born into a dual religious family where my father's side of the family is uh, Hindu and my mother's side of the family is Sikh. Um, and I was also born in Los Angeles, which was already hyper diverse when it came uh-huh. to religion and spirituality. Um, so I got these pockets of exposure from different communities that um, I think helped shape my understanding of pluralism very early on. But I would argue that it was from a very, you know, uh, peaceful standing. So everything seemed peaceful. I wanted everyone to get along. Everything was very lovely la-di-da because I was a child. Um, <laughs> but over time, I think learning about the truths behind the unease that comes with pluralism or the discomfort that people have with engaging across difference became clearer when it came to talking to my peers about my religious identity, Mm. uh, when it came to folks seeing my appearance as not being uh, someone that was white, um, when it came to uh, folks, you know, taking note of the fact that I was just a part of this, like, very different narrative going into these spaces where people just did not want to talk to each other. And this was on school grounds, let alone Mm -hmm. talking about it in the larger framework of society. Mm -hmm. Um, So going forward, it, the influence from the different traditions, you know, was always a very appreciative one. It was, I didn't have to be fearful about, you know, conversion or people, uh, trying to tell me what to do. It was actually always me taking those those nuggets and understanding my own traditions better. Mm. Um, it didn't really turn into activism until 2012 when um, in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, a Sikh Gurdwara was attacked by a white supremacist. Right. Um, that attack, uh, you know, nine years on, continues to sort of still spin around in my head because... It was a defining moment for not just myself as becoming an activist, but it was also a moment for the Sikh community to get a spotlight that it didn't need. The mm. Sikh community has been in the U.S. for almost 150 years. And when your first time of being in the spotlight is because you've been attacked as a false pretense because right. someone was looking to attack a mosque, and then people don't know who you are, what your community is all about, is not a good way to be in the national spotlight. 
Right. Um, it meant that it was a lot of, you know, religion 101 that had to start itself all over again in many communities. And rather than taking it as a tactic of fear or hatred or ignorance, I actually looked at the situation as an opportunity to build on a movement for more responsible solidarity. So it actually reminded me that I shouldn't just be out there defending my own community just because they were attacked. I need to actually show up for the other communities that have been consistently attacked over time. Mm -hmm. So fighting anti-Sikh and anti-Hindu sentiment also meant fighting against anti-Semitism, fighting against Islamophobia, fighting against anti-Blackness, and all of those things that over now the last eight, nine years, I've been doing that work in sort of this weird amalgamation of things. Yeah, yeah. And I want to get into uh, a little bit about the the interfaith space that you stepped into when you started that activism and to hear about that. But before we get to that, I'd, um, I'll, I'll turn over to, to Wolfgang and, and ask, ask you a similar question about what your upbringing was like. What, what was it like where you grew up? And, and tell us a little bit about uh, Hanover, where you are now. Yeah, I, um, my hometown is actually Kassel in, in, in the county of Hessen. But um, Hanover and Kassel, I would say all of Germany, when I was born, was Protestant or Catholic. Mm-hmm. You, you've had maybe 90 or 95 percent of the, of the population were either Protestant or Catholic. And I was born into a Protestant community and Protestant family, and there was basically no other confession religion around when I was a, mm. a child. In the in this, um, the secondary school, they used to split up the classes, two Protestant classes of three, one Catholic. So it was easy for the, in, in Germany, you have a, a religious education at school. So you need, or it's easy when you have classes with only one religion in it. So it makes it easier for the school administration. So they divided them up into... You're saying that the students the students themselves were divided. There were three Protestant classrooms two, and then two, one two exclusively and, and, and Catholic. One, or two. And one Catholic. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. So that was easy that, for, that, for the that school seems, administration. It seems unfathomable, uh, unfathomable here. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, 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 that's what, what I'm saying. The, 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 the religious situation in Germany until maybe 30 or 40 years ago was you've had Protestants and you've had Catholics and then you had very few people that were different. So there was a, sometimes you have formulas for the, for taxes and or, or so, and, and there were three categories. You've, you've had Protestant, Catholic and diverse. <laughs> which meant everybody else everybody else yeah. because there were no muslims yeah. no very few jews you know the terrible history of germany there were only maybe 20 25000 jews left uh, in the 1980s uh, so this very small community almost no muslims before 1960 so uh, a school in the 70s when i went to school did not have to to tackle with any of these questions because you were Protestant or Catholic, and then you had some somebody else, you know, very few, uh, and they were not important to to the school administration or or, or whoever. Yeah. Um, so was there was there a a formative experience for you? Was there some sort of a catalyst? Tahil talked about Oak Creek. Was there something like that that made it? So that interreligious to get into interreligious dialogue, well, yes, was a priority. I yeah. think I think I've, after the um, school time before I started my my uh, study of theology, Protestant theology, uh, at the University of Göttingen, I went to to Israel actually to to a kibbutz for half a year, and it was an Arab hmm. kibbutz. So you had Jews, but they were Arab Jews, and mm. mostly coming from Morocco and Tunisia and Algeria. Oh, wow. Well, well. And some Germans, actually. And we used to, I was 18 years old, 
we used to work uh, with the people uh, making telephones and buckets and plastic stuff. <laughs> and so it was funny. And uh, it was games, you know. And there was uh -huh. one, there was one uh, German uh, woman who actually fled from the Nazi in the, in the last second. There was a program in mm. 1938, which is called the Kindertransportee. Um, mm -hmm. So the Kindertransport, they went to England, uh, mostly girls. And she was one of them. Uh, there were a few thousand who really escaped in the last uh, minute. And, and she was the wow. only one of, of the whole family who actually survived and everybody else was dead. Wow. And wow. I was working with her. She was maybe 50 or 55 years old and making, making uh -huh. I think, games. or I think it was really the plastic games. Uh -huh. And after two weeks, it says she, she suddenly started to speak German with me after she had spoken English. And, and I was really surprised what's going on. And then she told me her story. And, and every time I came to work with her, it took her two hours or so until she changed from English into German because German was the, for her a language which was so much associated with the Nazis and, and Holocaust and so on that she, you know, couldn't really speak it but she i think she she took the chance i was 18 years old so i had nothing to do with all all of these uh, things right and she took the chance to sort of get in contact to a living german and you know very cautiously and so that was a special very special experience for me and when i started theology afterwards after the time in israel and i had seen jerusalem and all of that it was clear to me that the Jewish Christian question uh, should be central to to my study, and mm. so from actually from the first minute I, I studied the Bible, I had this perspective of, you know, where are the borders? So how do we treat the Jews? How does the Bible treat the New Testament treat the Jews, and uh, and all these very complicated questions in in the. Right in the bible itself but especially in the in the history of the church and so i started to be, not becoming an activist really but um, a student very much interested in in jewish um, christian questions and then after that um, uh, it sort of broadened and muslims came into came into sight right. and then and then hindus and buddhists and and sikh and alevi and, and yazidi and, and the situation in germany uh, has changed a lot today when you go to school you have uh, pupils from from all sorts of religious traditions which is a very new situation but today is absolutely common you have muslim pupils, um, Alevi pupils, very many Yazidi at the moment in Germany, uh, some Sikhs, some Hindus, some Buddhists, some Jews. Um, so the situation has changed completely uh, looking back to the time when I went to school. Yeah. Well, I want to I hear a little bit about um, the projects that you're working on in Hanover. Um, before we get to, to, to some of those details, uh, Tahil, let's pick up a little bit with, with your story. So, so as you became um, a young activist coming out of Oak Creek and, and stepping into this space, what, what was the, the interfaith movement, you could say? What, what did you find what, as, as a, as a you know, young millennial? Mm. Who, was, who was involved with interfaith work? those 10 years ago when you were there? <laughs> well, uh, if I'm going to be completely candid, I think it's Please the do. same people that are in the leadership now um, in mm. a lot of these cases because, you know, there still seems to be a uh, almost a an indirect white supremacy that still plays out uh, in the process of doing interfaith work. And I know that seems a bit jarring, I don't say it as an opportunity to, you know, oppress or, you know, create injustice towards minority communities in the United States. Um, it's a part of a framework that I would argue um, is a, a process and an experience that we're still learning from because it, the interfaith movement in the United States 
still has control from white upper echelon elder um, upper middle class uh, Anglo-Saxon Christian men that are cisgender. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That continues to be the locus of control when it comes to a lot of interfaith groups. And a lot of people will argue that, well, why aren't other faith communities sort of taking on the leadership? It's very hard to do that, knowing that there are so many structures and processes involved, and most importantly, funds to be able to do that work. Right. So when the, the locus of control remains on you know, leadership, funding, and power, it still remains in very white hands. And arguably, I don't see much of a difference in the last 10 years. What I do mm. see, though, is a change in the approach of how that solidarity and justice work looks like on the ground through other grassroots movements. Mm. I think when we look at movements that have come out of the past several years, especially um, Black Lives Matter, um, the intent is to be able to... Uh, you know, relinquish the control of the power that is often in typical hands and to offer it to the communities that need to be able to stand up and uplift themselves to be equalized. And I think there's a bit of that that the interfaith movement is picking up on. Um, there's still a lot of firsts for a lot of interfaith communities across the United States, whether we're looking at smaller, you know, city-based interfaith councils or whether we're looking at national and international organizations. There is a shift to what that leadership is looking like, and it's impacting the membership base as well. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of, you know, things that we're trying to counter in that way because I, as a as a 29-year-old interfaith activist, am still seen as, oh, look at that kid. He's such a rock star doing that <laughs> interfaith work on his own. Right. They still mm. don't see me as a leader of a movement or an organization, which yeah. means that kind of, you know, rebranding and refreshing of the perspective is going to be important, especially in the North American context, but arguably in the global context as well, because we don't have to ask for leadership. We're going to take it whether people like it or not. The matter is, how are you keeping the relevance of what interfaith work looks like? Yeah. Are we transitioning finally from the bridge building, relationship building and dialogue and going into the work of advocacy and solidarity? Or is it going to stay there at which point the relevance of the of the movement itself or the groups themselves is going to become lackluster over a while. So I, I want to then turn to the work that you're doing with uh, a, this global organization, United Religions Initiative, mm -hmm. um, and and certainly with the University of Southern California as well, and just understand then for uh, I, I guess I'm thinking primarily about URI. Um, how does an, a global organization like that fit into these type of interreligious efforts um, versus something that's more locally focused, like working on a university campus? Well, you know, it actually begins with that exact uh, story of how the organization was established. Uh, the former uh, Episcopal Bishop of California, Bishop William Swing, decided to go to all of these faith leaders and ask them if they wanted to come together uh, to talk about how they can work towards peace together. He got a pretty resounding no for a couple <laughs> of decades ago. And that, that sounds strange when you talk about it now, but looking at the fact that there has been a momentous shift towards engaging in this in a bigger way, especially with the Parliament of the World's Religions, especially with Religions for Peace International, really engaging the global space, um, Bishop Swing decided to approach it very differently. He said, maybe I should focus on the people, the adherents, the believers, the people on the ground, to be able to do this work themselves, rather than delegating it to the leaders of these religious institutions. So... In creating a charter that, you know, came together with dozens of people representing dozens of traditions and communities, the URI charter basically established the autonomous power of grassroots movements and being able to create change for justice, peace, and healing. Mm. And in the last 20 years, this has now become an organization with over 1,000 chapters in 110 countries of all of these different grassroots interfaith 
groups doing their own work based on the hyper-local context that, you know, they're called to uh, address. Mm-hmm. And that work continues to to change based on the needs of every community. There are no blanket solutions to how we do um the work for justice, but there's also no blanket approach to doing interfaith work, which is the beauty of letting grassroots communities do it at their own pace and their own style. They retain an autonomous nature while being able to be a part of this network that can learn and exchange between other communities at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like the, the key element is is number one, um, the the process and the practice itself, what that looks like, what are sort of the terms there. Uh, and and not assuming the same posture that has historically been the default, right. and then and then also connecting it. It sounds like not just for the purpose of simply academic exploration, but also tying it to a a real world scenario that has relevance to on the ground action that people are involved with. Exactly, because we can't look at this as, you know, there's one right way of doing interfaith work, right? We need to set a balance in the approach that every community needs to do this work efficiently and sustainably. So a big part of it is going to be education. We do need to learn about different communities, why they think differently, why, how do they have common ground, how are we able to work with each other. But then taking it to the next level and saying, okay, how do I best engage them? Okay, what skills and resources do they offer that we can mutually share or build on that can Mm -hmm. fix a common problem? It Mm -hmm. has to be a build-up approach. It can't just be sticking to one thing and doing really well at it and then doing nothing else but it. Mm -hmm. It's just saying that we need to have a more responsible approach to solidarity and saying, yes, we're really good at doing dialogue, but if someone needs us to show up, to help, you know, fight against climate change by helping with a project or holding uh, government officials accountable, we should do that too. Hmm. But we just have a strong base in a different place, so we'll know to do it here, but we can always reach out and make sure to help other movements for justice at the same time. Right. So there's an open door for partnership, it sounds like, in collaboration. An open door and actually living into the interconnectedness that we keep talking about in the interfaith movement and actually manifesting it as something tangible. Well, I'm looking. I'm I'm curious to hear more about the the specific example of Hanover in Germany. You all have a very thriving, uh, interreligious, uh, collaborative scene with lots of projects. So, Wolfgang, can you tell us a little bit more about about what it's like on on the ground there in Hanover? I think in Germany we only have one big city, which is Berlin, with about right. four million people, and a, it's a huge city. So the the distances between one place and the other are just incredible. Mm. And Hanover, compared to that, is small. And the 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 um, advantage of this is um, it's it's an open city, so you can get into it when you come from the outside as a migrant, or from Germany, or even from India, or, or wherever. So it's an open city. People would let you into the structure and not keep you out because you're not part of the, you know, the so-called maybe the the aristocracy. We have some cities where where there's a very strong elite and they won't let you in. And it's you're talking you know, about you're talking about the culture of the of the people there. Well, it's just the culture of the of the town, I think. Um, so you can get into. Um, connect with people and, and you know do something, and uh, that's a that's a bit a bit, bit of advantage of the city, and maybe it's one of the reasons why the interreligious dialogue started thirty years ago, and it was fruitful from the beginning. It's, it's not as complicated mm. as in the city of Berlin. Berlin then was divided between the east and the west, and four million people. Right. It's very hard to start something. Right. And, and in Hanover, you have had half, half a million people. And the advantage was um, the, the the most important people in the Protestant and the Catholic and the Jewish scene, they used to know each other um, since the 50s, I would say, or the 60s. Okay. So there was interreligious dialogue between Christians and Jews and, of course, between um, um, ecumenical 
contacts between Protestants and, and Catholics. And then when the Muslims came in, <clears throat> somebody said, and that was in the beginning of the 90s, so why don't we know each other? Yeah. So we have mosques. Do you know the mosques? Have you ever been there? Do you know one of the, um, you know, the imams or so? And no, I've, no, there were no contacts. And then they decided, and it was a grassroots movement. They, they decided to to just make contacts. And then it grew for a decade or so. Um, and they made actions and went to went to the new Hindu temple, the first Hindu temple in Hanover, opened in 1995. So it was exact in that time, and and the, a liberal Jewish synagogue opened in 1995, and and I think the biggest uh, Buddhist pagode in Germany, or maybe even Europe, opened in 1992 around that time. So very many new religious oh, buildings okay. came into being in Hanover, and the people didn't know it. So this group said, "Come, we open the doors." bring the people in, make actions um, Saturday afternoon, you know, talk with, with the people there and get to know each other. And so, so it went on. And then step by step, the House of Religions started in 2005. Wolfgang, describe that for us. For, for folks who haven't been to Hanover to see what the mm. House of Religions looks like, what, what is the concept and, and how does it appear and what are the type mm. of programming that usually happens yeah. there? Okay, the, the, um, the, we founded the Council of Religions uh, in 2009, I think. And uh, it's, it's actually the, the questions you, you talked about, Tahil, are very important questions. So the question, how do you keep the grassroots, um, well, the, the energy actually, but you have to connect it with some sort of institution and the religious communities. It makes no sense to only have, to me, to only have a grassroots movement when you have no contacts with the Protestant churches, the Catholics and Jewish and so on. So, so you have to, to try to, to get both. And we, we were in the lucky situation that we have had grassroots people, very similar to what I hear from your tile, um, people with no, there were no pastors or bishops or whatever, no rabbis and, and imams, just people with uh, a very strong intention to get something done or to get to get a process going, a start a process. You know, it was a marathon they started and they knew it would be a marathon and they had the, the condition to just keep going. You know, you had so yeah. many, so many disappointments and frustrations, but just keep going yeah? because time is on your side. Uh, the, the, the society is changing and we have to do something about it. And there are virtually no interreligious uh, or there have been virtually no interreligious structures in Germany up until 2000. Yeah. Wow. So it's very new, and um, the the connection between this grassroots element and the big churches and the synagogue, and then some of the mosques and the Buddhists and so on, is I think the strength in the, in the culture of the interreligious dialogue in Hanover, because without the big ones, we would not be able to to raise funds or to pay the rent for the House of Religions. And now we just we we make it anew. We improvised for improvised for fifteen years now, and just in this moment it, it is rebuilt, and we have a big new exhibition, and school classes will come and see the presentation of nine religious um, groups in this exposition, and that's what we basically do: get school classes and all sorts of um, you know groups come in to have uh, interreligious education. And in mm -hmm. a new house, which is hopefully uh, be um, finished in, in uh, 2022, uh, we, we've had um, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Baha'i, Alevi, um, Yazidi, and the humanists, which is especially for us, we have the non-religious humanist group also in the house, right. and, and they make a presentation. And that's basically what we do, and very much into religious dialogue, um, 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 public lectures, and, and and all that sort of thing you you might expect from a from an interreligious education center. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's so exciting, and I'm I'm I I know now that I have to put uh, Hanover on my my travel list for 2022 to be able to see the <laughs> House of Religions. I think that'll be very exciting. Tahil, you and I can we can travel together and go over there. I am so down. And we Love see it. we okay. see that this movement towards starting um, houses of religions is um, growing. Yeah? There's a very big initiative in Vienna, um, Austria, and Bern is there, Hanover is there, Berlin is doing something, Munich. So we always That's say um, a, a town in Germany, or at least a bigger town, needs or should have an institution that cares about interreligious education. You know, we have institutions for everything in this country, <laughs> but interreligious education is just at the grassroots level. And people do it in there, in you know, in the evenings. Um, yeah, and this well, that's is, something that I think is common in the United States, yeah. right? This idea of religious literacy is is a very it's a it's a, it's a sort of a scary topic for a lot of people because. Um, because of uh, supposedly the separation of church and state that we have in in, in the United yeah. States, but if you look at everything from, you know the 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 people who are the lawmakers and what they're professing to our pop culture and literature, you have you have religion infused in all of it. And like Tahil, like you said earlier, when the first time you hear about a community is when they're under attack. It's hugely problematic, right? It's it it become and it and it exposes how little religious literacy we have as a society. So actually, it it sh there should be a system for us to have a a a um you know a a secular whether it's comparison of re comparative religions courses uh, or just a general educational require component to our school programs that talks about this idea of what people believe because it's a it's it's so fundamental to so many people in our society right what do you think right. yeah no that's absolutely right i'm actually speaking about this exact point tomorrow because um what often becomes a challenge when talking about the separation of church and state at least in the american context of a secular democracy is that there is just no willingness to address religion and spirituality for what it's worth, which is valid because when we have, you know, constitutional protections, you're protecting e everyone equally under the law. What that leaves out, though, is the nuance and the responsibility that the electorate has in being more engaged, one, with its fellow citizens, and two, with its own government when it comes to being a part of this pluralistic democracy that we also manifest at the same time. So just because we have a separation of church and state does not mean that we shouldn't be looking at religious stakeholders and being able to better implement processes or look for them for support during disasters or looking for them to be fighting for civil rights or anything like that. That means we need to change the approach of engagement to make sure more people show up and more people are, you know, holding, you know, governance accountable in that process. And a very key part of that, unfortunately, is interreligious education, which many people still don't get because it's never a choice to want to learn about different communities. Right. It's either you have to take it as a requirement at some point in college or once you choose the, the path that you go down and you come across random people, that's how you're able to learn about them. If we change the intention of understanding, you know, the richness of the fabric that we're all sharing, and we do it starting at an earlier age through, you know, a K through 12 education, or for those that have moved on by intentionally creating spaces for them to learn without any hesitation or commitments, there's going to be a more productive um, I think relationship building that'll take place because of that. Well, I wonder, Tahil, on, on that point that you mentioned before about not just being caught up in dialogue, when we're on video conferences all day, every day, it can it can be feel like it's somewhat stagnated at just the dialogue piece. We end up talking with perhaps a, a, a broader uh, resource of people 
but how do we how do we uh, accepting the moment that we're in now where there isn't as much personal contact take that to that next step of actual action what do you think yeah so you know it's really interesting because i i've just completed a year at uri and we also just completed a year in this pandemic my first Uh day of starting this job was when the state of california shut down oh my goodness i had to really figure out how to do all of this work, having met none of my colleagues before in person, having no <laughs> training in person, nothing like that. Um, so what I had to do was think about, well, what is the best use of virtual space? Well, there are three main things, learning, organizing, and planning. So in the learning stage, right now is the perfect time for any person to learn about the world's religions. Because if you want to immerse yourself in a space to learn about how communities do different practices, you can literally tune into any sacred space around the world to be able to see how they do their services. It's a fantastic way to be able to learn. In terms of planning and organizing, we're in a really good space right now as incubators to be able to really plan for this newer normal that we're going to have to deal with because of the pandemic which means many things might slow down in the physicality of the moment, in the isolation of the moment. But that means we can start building steps to be prepared for going back into the physical you know, nature of the future and being able to do it in a more robust way than we might usually be used to. So it's not to say that you know the point of having dialogue right now ends with just ha- having continuous dialogue, We can also plan events. We can also plan conferences. We can also work on projects. All of these things can still happen. We just literally have, you know, cut the middleman of needing to all gather in a physical space to talk about those things. We now have a much more tangible way of being able to share information now that doesn't require us to wait and then meet, wait and then meet, wait and then meet, when we can just schedule something and it'll happen much quicker. I would Mm -hmm. actually argue that because of starting this job, I've been doing way more than I thought I was going to do uh, <laughs> in virtual space. Uh, when it comes to you know facilitations and giving talks and being able to um, help organizations doing the work that they're doing on the ground in, in my region in North America because they have things to do. They still have issues that they need to address. They just need to adapt and figure out uh, the new approaches of how to do it. And now yeah. is the perfect time to figure that out, even a year onwards. I, I love that that um, strategic mind that you've applied to this because I think that it's it's a good thing to take into consideration that it doesn't have to be all three of those things that you laid out at once. I mean, inevitably, it will be we're we're in overlapping cycles all the time and everything like that. But but I think that as so many of us have taken this time in our spiritual discipline to think of it as a time to to be in a reflective mode. Um, and be okay with that, sort of to tamp down our own anxiety and and ways of being, um, just to to adapt and deal with with frankly the collective trauma of being in a in a pandemic. I think it's it's helpful also to hear you say that as an organizer in this space, um, we can be frankly more reflective as well and and be in that planning mode and know that you know, have faith in a certain sense that we will emerge from this and, um, and be ready then to do even, even deeper work when we're together. In the first half of our program, we heard about our guests' projects and the work in their communities. And now, as we do every episode in the second half of our program, I invite my dear guests to ask each other some questions of their own. I do have a, a, a couple of questions that come to mind, but I kind of want to start with, you know, the sometimes the elephant that's in the room about how people look at uh, the work of interreligious engagement. Um, how do you usually deal with um, individuals or communities that um, are star- staunchly against the work that you might be doing in Hanover. 
I feel like oftentimes in a space here in the U.S., for example, there's just so much diversity that if people are not interested in doing something, they just don't answer. They don't say anything, which is, you know, really annoying on one side. But at least you get a clear message of, you know, okay, they don't want to engage. Uh, but do you feel like there has been apprehension towards uh, the kind of, you know, movement building with religious communities that people are pushing back against? And how do you respond to that? Um, I, th I think in Hanover, we make the experience the, that the appreciation, you say appreciation, the people appreciate what, what we are doing, especially the, the council of the city. So the people in, in the town hall and everybody around and, and in the parliament of Lower Saxony, which is in Hanover. So at, at the moment, I think very many people know us because we have been talking to so many politicians and, and important people in the last 20, especially in the last 10 years. So almost everybody knows us, all the, all the big uh, political parties. And we have in, in Hanover the very good situation that all the parties support what we are doing because it, except for the AFD, you know, AFD is the, the right wing, the new right wing party in Germany. They don't really like what we're doing or are opposing it. But everybody else um, is supporting it. And the the new house of religions, which will be um, about 800 square meter, and we have to pay a lot of rent for that. And the funding is basically from the city of Hanover. And, and, they're, and they, they give us a lot of money. Um, and all the parties support that. And, and that's a very, it's, it's, it's a big um, gift for us. So we feel that the, the experience um, in the city as a whole is a strong backing of what we're doing. And, and that's, that's a good experience. So, so we have people um, who don't, like what we are doing or, or are even opposing it but in in in, in our praxis is is no big is no big thing really mm, mm. so well, my, my, my question to you would be the the i, I would like to does the 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 structure of of you say uri does it does it work in the united states um, in Germany, I don't really see much of URI. I know they are there, and you you can find something on, on the German homepage, but it does not seem they are very active at the moment. And and you have the big problem that you have um, groups like Religions for Peace Europe and Religions for Peace Germany and religions for peace in the world, United Nations, and so on. So how do you see that uh, the the, the relation between these groups um, in the United States? Yeah, so, you know, the structure of URI in, in North America is a very fascinating one because um, if there's anything that American grassroots organizations like to do is make a name of themselves. So when it comes to affiliation with a larger global organization, uh, anything that smells of they're going to lose their autonomy uh, is a problem. Okay. So I have to be very careful about <laughs> uh, the approach that I take in making mm. sure that you, mm. it's your work, it's your organization. I'm just stepping in to fill in the gaps that you need support with. That is all I am going to support you with because that's what you want. Um, and you know, the the way in which the interfaith movement works in North America, it totally makes sense because the spectrum of the kinds of interfaith work that happen here at some points are very mellow and very relational. And on some points, they're absolutely political. There's just no hesitation from being political here. And the ability to be able to fill in the contextual gaps in between every single kind of interfaith organization, if they're a part of being a cooperation circle in URI for us, makes it a very fun time, but it is an unpredictable week for me every week. Um, just because the needs are different, the, um, the support is different, uh, the kinds of folks that are looking to um, 
you know, engage collaboratively across with different groups as well can be different too, depending on the theme or the issue that they want to address. Um, so I would say that I think I have a more challenging time uh, just acknowledging that the unique, the, the, the needs are going to be so different. But I think there's so much strength in that because it shows how much the interfaith movement really encompasses anything and everything that needs to get done. And I would say that with my my colleagues in different regions, they're probably going to have the same different kind of experience too, because the engagement of interfaith in the U.S. and Canada is going to be different from Europe, which is different from South Asia, which is different from Africa, which is different from Latin America and the Caribbean. So based on that, I mean... It's it's the beauty of actually engaging in so much diversity, but sometimes that diversity can be really overwhelming if you don't know how to step into each of those spaces. Um, and with some of my colleagues that are in Europe, uh, they are, you know, engaging in a lot of different activities. And I guess this is just a point of making sure that I can keep you in the loop with them if you want to connect with them. <laughs> Good. Any other uh, other questions that you guys have for each other, Tahil, you I think you were you were trying to ask a follow up or something before. Oh no, I was just really you know impressed by the fact that Hanover was really, um, you know, footing the bill for something as significant as that. Because if we talked about any American or can like an American city trying to say, oh let's let's support an interfaith building, that would that would that conversation wouldn't go well. <laughs> I would think. Um, and um, at the same time, I actually do acknowledge a lot of the the challenges of what I think we see as a part of the political spectrum and how it reflects itself in religious communities as well. So as you were saying, you are having a challenge in engaging with more right-wing parties. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I would you know, argue almost the same thing here in mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's a trend uh, of how we might be understanding that kind of... Um, need for engagement and what the engagement looks like mm. the, the, the so religious, i thought that was very interesting to see some parallels there yeah so the the, the religion all the religions are really active in engaging anti-right wing um in especially in hanover but in very many places in in germany so we have whenever the the national the npd the nazi party in germany or x almost not really but not the same like in the US. You won't see swastikas in Germany. They are forbidden. But uh, we have the NPD and, and some groups like that trying to make a demonstration. And the religious groups are very strong and they bring 25,000 people together with everybody else, with all the you know workers groups and, and important. Um, the, the civil society is very strong in this town. And especially when it comes engaging against right-wing uh, groups. All right, Tahil. Well, we got to book those dates. We got to get yep. those flights. I'm I'm heading <laughs> over right now. <laughs> we're gonna get a crew together. We're gonna we're gonna come. Uh, I can come ask to. I'll inform you when everything's ready and the, the 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 colleagues in Bern are closed at the moment. But hopefully, sometime in in twenty two, uh, um, they will reopen again. And Vienna is actually a very 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 interesting project. They actually founded a complete new part of the town uh, on the other side of the, I think you say Danuvia, Donau in German, the big river flowing through Vienna. And there used to be a big airport, uh, so many square kilometers, I don't know. It's a huge area and they they planned a whole new part of town um, on the, you know, on the desk, you know, just thinking and then building. And the idea was to have sort of an interreligious yeah, quarter or center uh, in this new part of uh, Vienna. I think it's 22, Vienna 22. And they call it Seestadt Aspern. I just um, received an, a new magazine from there. And they have plans of, of having an, an interreligious education center there compared with a, with a university and then maybe even synagogues or mosques. And, and if they really built it, it's, it's still it has to be, you know, they have to, I think, uh, raise the funds for that. 
But if they built it, it will be the biggest thing in, in, in Europe. And um, mm. we have contacts with the people building it. Uh, we have been there, I think, two, two years ago. So it would be a nice tourist tour, Hanover, um, maybe Berlin, uh, Bern, Vienna. You see very some very nice places in Europe. <laughs> and, and with all of this. <laughs> Tahil, and the best part is, is apparently the, the city council of Hanover is paying for our trip. So, of course. You know. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's pretty free. It's, it's easy, pretty free with the cash. It's easy to get money for international contacts, you know. <laughs> nice, nice. So we'll have to we'll have to we'll have to do a guest lecture series or something. <laughs> I'm okay with this. I'm completely okay with this. <laughs> Guys, this has been so great. Thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with me. I uh, I I'm inspired by the work that both of you are doing, and I I really look forward to us keeping in contact and and continuing to build these these threads these relationships so that we can um continue to to do good work together and and connect with one another globally thank you jack and thank you wolfgang it was a great thank conversation. you thank you great Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests Tahil and Wolfgang. You can read more about Tahil's work with the United Religions Initiative at uri.org. And you can read about Wolfgang's work with the House of Religions in Hanover, Germany at hausderreligionen.de. Or if you're like me and don't speak German, you can get the translation into English. As always, a big thanks to my fellow interfaith astronauts Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and to our musical maestro Jeff Philosopher for providing our theme music. You can also find our entire back catalog of interfaithish episodes wherever you find and enjoy podcasts. Remember to leave us a rating and a review. Follow us on social media at interfaithish and like all of our content. As I said at the beginning of the show, be sure to join me all through the month of March for nightly Instagram live conversations with friends from all sorts of backgrounds for an interfaith exploration of the mystic text of the Baha'i faith, the hidden words. And as usual, we want to hear about what you've learned from our shows, dear listener, and all the interfaith-ish you wish to dish. So write us an email at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaith-ish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.